Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. And we're off! And we're here just absolutely throwing down some smack talk about all the people we despise in the world. But this is not two hours of smack talk. This is fan club, where we talk about stuff that we like and occasionally stuff that we fucking hate. Uh, <laughs> um, sometimes we do go off on tangents about stuff. Anyway, my name's Nick Helm. My this name is Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size. Fan Club. Nick Helm, um, what is the first rule of Fan Club? Tell your friends about Fan Club. If you're a fan of Fan Club, then it's your fucking God-given duty to <laughs> tell everyone you know and get them to listen to the show. You know, we could, be, we could be in the top, top five podcasts of Malta if people were telling their friends. Yeah. If not, we've gone all the way down... It's the top 200. Sorry, I was just uh, clearing up my desktop. <laughs> I just saw something that I needed to put in a folder, and I was just like, I'll do that. But I've left the boing sound effect on. Um, yeah, so this is just basically a show. Oh, why am I? Oh, God. I'm out of sorts. I've been working all morning, so I'm changing my... I've, I've, put, my, I've put, my, put a different hat on now. So it's good. I've written, yeah, it's good. You see a picture of you in, in the gym. I saw a video of you working out, doing pumping iron. Yeah, lift, lift it. <laughs> did you get the joke? I don't know if I read the joke. What did he say? It wasn't a joke. It was literally I was lifting seven kilograms. Oh, no, I didn't. I thought you were genuinely, like, uh, doing, like, um, uh, no, it's like universe in. It's literally the lightest weight that you can lift. I see. And loads of people have gone, like, you've got two camps of people and they're all idiots, right? (laughs) One group of people saying, go on, my son. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) it's seven kilograms. It's like Mm. as heavy as, um, it's like three DVDs worth of weight. (laughs) (laughs) And it's both arms, so it's spread over my entire body. And then the other half of the people go, Ooh, he's not lifting very much. And you go, yeah, I know. That's the... That's bag the, of sugar is a kilogram, isn't it? Well, maybe it's slightly more than that. I think it's maybe slightly over a stone. But when you can lift as much as I can lift... Right. Uh, I mean, seven kilograms is nothing. Wow. You know? Seven kilograms is the, is the lightest of the, of the weights on the thing. So right. that's the lightest you can get. If um, you flipped anyway, yeah. a peanut at some bottles of uh, spirits in a bar, like Superman in Superman 3, would they shatter? I got the reference! I got the reference! Uh, you've ruined it now by having to explain it, but, like, we could have... I'd have had to be... Uh, I've, had, I've had to be uh, having a, a drunken fight with myself beforehand. <laughs> or is it after? It's after, isn't it? Um <laughs> And he's got like, stubble, isn't he, at that point? He's going stubble because he's bad. And his, and his outfit's slightly dirty uh, because he's got tar in them. Yeah, it is. It's more purpley, isn't it? It's more purpley um, hue. No, I, think it's like, I think it's like dirty. It's sort of like just a dirty blue. Um, Maybe that's it. But it's just duller. And he's got his stubble. His hair's a bit more it? greasy. Oh, if you could get any more greasy. Um... So, yeah, but that's what happens when you mix 
Is it red? Kryptonite. Oh. No, it's just green tri- kryptonite, isn't it? Green kryptonite. Like um, Richard Pryor doesn't know how much what the what the missing ingredient for kryptonite is. So because he's like a chain smoker, um, he uh, looks at the uh, packet of fags that he's got on his desk, and he sees that the missing ingredient is tar- one of the ingredients is tar. So he just fills up the rest of the kryptonite that he's making with tar. Uh, and then they make kryptonite, and it, it doesn't kill Superman, it just makes him evil. And then Superman becomes that like, raging alcoholic where he drinks stuff, and he tries to sexually assault women. And uh, it's a kid's film, by the way, uh, story. <laughs> so Christopher Reeve in his, in his signature role. Um, Superman 3, what a weird film. <laughs> the scene with Richard you know, Pryor, where um, Richard Pryor um, goes into the vault, I really like that a lot. Always makes me laugh. I, I like. I, I think the first film is quite because it was the first of its kind. It's sort of the balance between how serious it takes itself and how fun it is. Is kind of like it's either one or the other. It's either deadly serious and quite kind of like it's like they've done a biopic of a real human being, like the first half. It's like. This is the this is the Superman story, and then the second half when you've got kind of like Gene Hackman uh, with his wigs and Ned Beatty, it's kind of like it's so much lighter. And then you've got Christopher Reeve sort of like bumbling around in Metropolis. It's so much lighter. It's just kind of like it's just, it's definitely a film of two halves. Mm. The Superman two, um, I don't know. Um, Superman two was all right. I've never seen. Um, the Richard Donner cut. I've only ever seen the Richard Donner, the Richard Lester version, where basically uh, the Soulkins, wasn't it? Mm. They uh, when they did the when they did the original Superman, they basically the script was the size of a phone book, a book and um, they tried to film the entire thing in one go, and then later on. Only pay the actors for one film, only pay the crew for one film, and then the idea would be that they'd split it in half and then they'd release one film and then Superman 2 later. So I think what happened was... Because they did the same thing with the Musketeers, I think. They did... uh, Was it the Three Musketeers and then the Four Musketeers? And then the one in the 80s was Return of the Musketeers. Um, So they they basically filmed all the Musketeers together and said, we'll work with them, so let's do it with Superman. Uh, then what happened was um, the release date was coming, so then Richard Donner just put all of his efforts into finishing the first film. He really didn't get on with the directors, and then when it came to finishing off the second film, they fired him and they recast. They they they, they but they'd filmed like half the film. They fired him and then they replaced him with Richard Lester, who directed Help and Hard Day's Night and the Musketeer movies, and. Um, he finished off Superman 2, and then basically when you watch it, there are huge differences. Margot Kidder refused to wear makeup, I think, for Richard Lester because she was sort of like on Richard Donner's side. So they're kind of like, the, a lot of the characters look mm. very different. I think... I think uh, Richard, um, Richard Lester, it's something like he directed 51%, because that's what you needed legally to say he directed it or something, isn't it? Right. Well, no, because I think it's still Richard Donner. <laughs> Is it still credit to him? Yeah, I think I think Superman Two is Richard Donner. Is it? Is it? Maybe I can't remember. 
Hmm. It's definitely one of them. If it, yeah, but that makes sense if it's 51. But um, really weird sort of, like, differences, like... Uh, um, uh, the, who, what's the female kryptonite called? Kryptonium. Uh, um, she's called... Oh, gosh, what is she called? General Zod. God. Um, oh, no, it's not what I think it is. It's Louise, isn't it? So, what hmm. her costume... Uh, is sexier, I think, in the Richard Donner cut, and then in the Richard Lester cut, like she, she's got like her arms out and stuff, you know, because some people are just all over those arms, you know, and in the Richard Lester cut, like her her um, her costume is slightly more frumpy, and you can basically tell who directed what from scene to scene, and um, how much the crew. I think like Gene Hackman refused to turn up to do any more filming. So he only really filmed for the first block. He's in the second one. Not in the third one. They've sort of replaced him with uh, Robert, Robert Vaughan. Yeah, playing quite a similar <laughs> character, like a billionaire. Exactly. You just literally go, it was meant to be Lex Luthor and they changed it at the last minute. Hmm. Um, because Superman's got so many different bad guys, why would you just replace him with a billionaire? Hmm. And then, miraculously, Gene Hackman turned up again for Superman 4, which is one of the worst films ever made. So it's kind of, like, really mental. Superman 3 basically came about because... Um, uh, I think it was Johnny Carson. Uh, Richard Pryor went on the Johnny Carson show and just basically said how much he loved um, Superman. And then the producers were like, do you want to be in it? <laughs> and he was like, sure. And then Superman 3 was basically written as a vehicle for... This is a Richard Pryor movie that also has Superman in it. And it's, it's like, um, it's like uh, uh, those comic book team-ups where kind of like Scooby-Doo team up with Kiss. And it's kind of like you've got like a real-world thing and a fictional thing, and then they kind of go like to a crossover thing. Or like um, when the Harlem Globetrotters turn up in, in stuff, it's kind of like, oh, right, they're like a real-world thing. And that was it. They were just like, well, it's, it's Richard Pryor... Meets Superman. And that was like the whole pitch for Superman 3. And I think, probably, Superman 3 is my favourite. I've got a lot of time Superman 3. I do like all of them. I think, but I think Superman the movie <coughs> is, like, kind of perfect until the going back in time stuff. Everything up to there, I love all of it. And I particularly love uh, Gene Hackman in the first Superman. I think the going back in time stuff was... Um, uh, meant to be the ending for Superman 2, or there was, it was something like they didn't have an ending for the film because they were cutting it in half. So they came up with that ending, and they were like, well, that'll do. But I think it was kind of like a rushed idea. Um, what did you say? You like Gene Hackman? Particularly in Superman. I think he's he's great. Yeah, I think he's it's so weird, because when you look at the films he was making at the time, he was, like, deadly serious. And then, the, like, Marlon Brando coming along and and, and then so, because of all the contracts, Marlon Brando refused to appear in the second one. So they had Superman's mum in it. And then by the time you get to the fourth one, it's kind of like just some random dudes that are, that are, that are giving Superman... I don't know. I think, the, I think the third film is the one that tonally is the most consistent and also it's the one that I remember the most from being a kid. I guess by the third one, it's a fully 
Richard Lester film, I guess it's a Richard Lester comedy. I mean, it, the whole film plays kind of like comedy, doesn't it? Apart from I the mean, watching, bit with the robot. <laughs> watch, watching it now, I think it is absolute... I think, obviously, Superman the movie is a better movie. Hmm. Superman 2 is a better movie, but my favourite Superman film would be Superman 3, just because... Um, I just remember it the most. I think, you know, the bit when Superman splits up and he's bad Superman and good Superman, that's great. The bit with the Combine Harvester, that's great. Right. The bit with... Um, I like Lara Lang, and uh, I also... Uh, I think it's a bit it's a bit shit the way Margot Kidder was sort of, like, sidelined, but they didn't forgive her, really, for taking Richard Donner's side over things. And then, um, yeah, and the ending is absolutely terrifying. When she turns into that robot, it's terrifying. And I like Robert Vaughan. I love Robert Vaughan. So having him kind of like being really smarmy, it's just, it's so weird. I think the bad guy was originally meant to be Brainiac. I think it's Brainiac and also Mr. Mixier's Pidlick, who's the little kind of dwarf guy who's in the comics, who I think was going to be um, Dudley Moore, was the original plan. Perfect casting. <laughs> um, sure. Um, oh, here would have been... I don't know. It's just a, such a weird way. It's like Star Trek Four, hmm. where when they made Star Trek Four, they were kind of like because I think it, I think Star Trek Four is a really weird one. I'm watching all the original series of Star Trek and um, really enjoy it. Um, and I think when they made Star Trek Three, so, so Spock dies at the beginning at the end of Two, then he comes back in Three, and Three is sort of like it takes the whole film to basically get Spock back. And it's quite a serious, worthy kind of film. And then when they got to the fourth one, they were just like, let's do one like the old TV series. So they go back to modern-day San Francisco. When you're watching it in context, you kind of like... It, when you watch it in the context of the films, you go, it's a bit weird, isn't it, that they went back to modern-day San Francisco in one of the films. But they were doing stuff like that all of the time in the series. You know, they were going back to kind of like... Um, oh, this is what uh, mid twentieth century. They, they found Earth too, and they go back to mid twentieth century uh, Earth, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, well that would have cut a load of budget off of your episode. So doing the um, doing the uh, uh, going back to modern day San Francisco thing, that sort of like makes sense, and that sort of came about because Eddie Murphy really loved uh, Star Trek. Like Eddie Murphy loves Star Trek, and he said, oh, I'd like to do a Star Trek film, and they sort of came up with. Star Trek Four, as because it was Paramount and Eddie Murphy had made Beverly Hills Cop for Paramount, they said right, Star Trek Four, they'll come back to modern day San Francisco and or, or Los Angeles maybe, and uh, the Star Trek crew will hang out with Eddie Murphy who's playing a lecturer, and it was the same thing. It was like we'll get Eddie Murphy, team up with the Star Trek team, and then we'll just see what happens. And then contractually, I think he went off to do Golden Child instead. And then they were ended up going like, well, we'll still base it on... Uh, I mean, I love that film. I think Star Trek Four. I watched Star Trek Six recently. I didn't realise it. Is it Nicholas Roeg? No, it's... Um, who is it? Ah, oh, who is it's it? It's Nicholas something, isn't it? Fuck it. Yes. Nicholas Meyer? Nicholas Meyer. I didn't realise that Nicholas Meyer was literally the guy that did all three of the even films. Oh, you know, right, so, okay. the, so he wrote and directed Wrath of Khan. Right. 
Then he um, wrote Star Trek IV, but he didn't direct it for some reason, and then Leonard Nimoy directed it. And then he uh, wrote and directed um, Undiscovered Country. And they're all the best ones. They are literally the best ones. The other ones, they're not terrible, and they're still quite comforting to watch the original crew do stuff. Um, even the first one, which is really sad, and the fifth one, which is fucking awful. Uh, never ever still seen some, the fifth one. I mean, it's weird. awful. It's really weird. And it's sort of a remake of the first one, weirdly. Um, it's kind of, yeah, so they're... And that was William Shatner that directed that one. So the I don't know why he didn't do the I don't know why he didn't do the third one. I think it's because maybe he killed Spock off in the second one, and then they brought him back, and he was kind of like, "Oh, do you know what? I I killed him off. I don't feel ready to sort of play." I think maybe he didn't do the third one then. That's why he didn't do the third one. <laughs> Because they worked really hard on killing Spock off in the second one. When they brought him back, he was just like, I'm not going to have anything to do with the third one because I've just killed him off and I can't work out a way to bring him back and all of that other stuff. And um, Or I can't be bothered to sort of like... I think he found it quite emotional and it was quite tough. And I think they got loads of hate mail as well when they killed Spock off. I know that when they um, did the second one, the first one, they'd spent tons of money on it because they wanted it to be a... <laughs> a Star Wars film, didn't it? It was like Paramount Star Wars. It was like property they had that they thought could sort of measure up against Star Wars. They put tons of money into it and it didn't really make it back, but I think it did okay. And they were never really going to do a sequel at all. Wasn't it the director director of West Side Story that did the original story? Robert Wise. And then, um, and the the studio wanted West uh, wanted uh, Star Wars. Hmm. And um, I think they, the people that were making it, I think Gene Roddenberry kind of wanted a 2001. Mm. And then what you get is like this really slow plodding. Which, you know, I'd always find it very difficult to get through. Boring. But I think if you have it on in the background while you're doing stuff, it's actually, you know, you've still got the crew, but like, yeah, it's it's dull. Um, And I think they made the second one because. They weren't going to make it, but they had a slot where they needed to make something. And I think it might have been Nicholas Meyer. Someone came up with the idea that they went, well, you know, Star Trek, we used to make it on TV, so we could do it. We could probably do it for half the budget that we spent on the first one. And it had something like that. It's a much cheaper film, but just much more successful by just making a, you know, more like a TV action thing. And it yeah. just works a lot better. Well, yeah, it's sort of like they beam down to a place and then, you know adventures happen and then they you know it's kind of like they're in a they're in the uss enterprise they beam down to a planet stuff happens on the planet and you know yeah i guess it's got a similar structure and also they were like saying the thing that we didn't have in the first film was a bad guy so you just sort of watched the first series or the, the original series and was just like okay what happened with khan nothing happened with khan so we'll bring him back as a bad guy which is why in Star Trek, I'm not even a massive Star Trek fan, but in the cinema, when you've got um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing John Harrison, who turns out to be Khan, they've not even met Khan. <laughs> because in... <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just like... Um, fucking hell. In the original series, they meet Khan. Khan is a bad guy, and then he gets stranded on a, on a planet. 
And then that's it. But when they rebooted Star Trek, when J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek, they basically came up with a parallel universe to the original TV series so that they could do their own adventures. And you go, that's great. If you're going to bring Khan into it, do a Khan um, uh, origin story. But don't, like, bring in Benedict Cumberbatch, who looks nothing like Ricardo Montalban. You've made such an effort to make all, the, all of the others look and feel like the original. And then you've done stunt casting with Benedict Cumberbatch, who looks nothing like Ricardo Montalban. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, you haven't introduced him, and then he just comes in and says his name is Khan. And then the audience go, yeah, right, yeah, like Wrath of Khan. And, but none of the crew know who he is. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I don't know why they did that. But anyway, so by the time Star Trek Four came along, they'd already reintroduced Spock. So uh, Nicholas Meyer wrote Star Trek Four. Leonard Nimoy really didn't want to be part of the franchise anymore. In fact, um, I think he actually re released a book after the Star Trek The Motion Picture called I'm Not Spock. And when they said we're making another Star Trek, he refused to do it. And they said, OK, we'll only, I'll only do it if you kill me off halfway through the film. So they killed him off halfway through the film, and that didn't work. And uh, he was just like, I've just brought out this book called I'm Not Spock. I don't want to be Spock anymore. So they said, well, it doesn't really work, but what if we kill you off at the end of the film? And they killed him off at the end of the film, and then it all worked structurally. And then they have that, like, teaser at the end where you see his coffin on the Genesis planet. Oh, I don't know why we're talking about it. Half of our... Half, three-quarters, 95%. Natalie is definitely asleep right now. 95% of our audience haven't bothered tuning in this week. Well, they have, and they've gone, yikes. Dude, like, the thing is, we both, we both go, don't really like Star Trek. And yet when you don't say, really like Star who, Trek. Directed, who directed Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country? And you go, oh, Nicholas Meyer? <laughs> And you go, I don't even know I know that. <laughs> but you know what? Christopher Plummer um, said that his character in Star Trek Undiscovered Country is one of his favourite characters of all time <laughs> he's ever played. Like, and it's kind of like Frank Langella from Masters of the Universe, <laughs> where it's kind of like, you know, you've got this Oscar-winning, incredible actor that's kind of like done historic thing. I mean, he was in Sound of Music, he was in Waterloo, he played the Duke of Wellington in Waterloo. <laughs> He's, done, he's like had this huge career spanning, uh, spanning heroic romantic leads and character actors, and he's an old man, and he turns around at this kind of like retrospective and said, um, I think his name is Chang. He goes, that character that I played in Star Trek VI is my, my, one of my favourite characters, and it was the best experience I've ever had filming any film. And you go, that is mental, Christopher Plummer. That is mental. <laughs> And it's the same thing with Frank Langella, who's had like the entire, like almost the same career. This huge career. He's played Dracula. He's played like uh, Nixon. He's had like straight roles and kind of like funny roles and all this other stuff. He's like a huge career. Worked with so many directors, like famous directors. And he turns around and goes, "Yeah, my favourite role was Skeletor. I loved it." <laughs> and um, and they, I imagine so when they're making that Netflix film or whatever it was of Master Universe, they're probably a bit embarrassed to ask him. Should we ask him if he wants to be in it? And they'll probably approach, really. And he's like, well, I'd love to! <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait to go in and chat about Skeletor. Because even though it's his most famous role, I would say, next to Ivan Drago, Dolph Lundgren uh, does not like He-Man, 
<laughs> he's embarrassed by it. He thinks it's a bad film. Uh, I think what Frank Langella has done there, which is typical of actors, is he's only watched his own performance and he's gone, oh, that's great. <laughs> that is top-notch. That's brilliant. Um, that's so funny. It's so funny that we talked about it. Oh, we've talked about everything. That throne room cost so much money they had to set 60% of the film in it. <laughs> um, but Frank Langella loving Skeletor that much. He's just like, oh, I love that. <laughs> Oh, my God. I, I only worked out that it was um, Frank Langella. It was so weird, right? So I hadn't seen Masters of the Universe in, like, maybe 15 years. And I watched uh, The Ninth Gate, um, starring Johnny Depp. I mean, I don't even know if you're allowed to watch The Ninth Gate anymore. Starring Johnny Depp, directed by Roman Polanski. It's kind of like, maybe, maybe they cancel each other out. But... I watched The Ninth Gate, and there's a bit at the end where uh, Frank Langella, spoiler alert, where Frank Langella is sucking up the uh, Satan's energy, and he sort of, like, gets set on fire, and he goes, nah, see, I'm immortal, I don't feel it, I can't feel it. And he does this thing with his hand where he sort of, like, sort of, like, uh, moves his hand around his face, like he's absorbing power. And I went... That looks exactly like the move that Skeletor makes at the end of Masters of the Universe when he's absorbing power, right? <laughs> and then I looked it up and it was the same actor. And you go, oh, my God. Frank Langella literally has a signature move for whenever one of his characters is absorbing power. It's like he did the same thing in both films. Yeah. Loved it. And Frank Langella's great in Cutthroat Island. Good. Have you ever seen Cutthroat Island? Sorry, when it came out. But I don't think I've seen it since. I don't think that that's a bad film. I don't remember it being bad, and I remember it being quite like quite well done as well. Like, it was... Uh, Renny Harling's good at that kind of action movie. I'd be surprised if it kind of doesn't hold up that badly. When he got a budget, I mean, he was... He made... I think it's quite... I think it's really unfair that it had such a negative impact. I mean, it ruined everyone's careers. Matthew Modine didn't go on to do much big stuff. Gina Davis kind of, like, got stalled. She won an Oscar. Mm. Um, Rennie Harlan. And you kind of, like, go, well... I mean, they, they didn't agree. They both did night, didn't they, after? Um, yeah, which was... I don't think that made money either, did it? No. Uh, but the, well, that was shame. Like, Long Kiss Goodnight, I absolutely loved at the cinema. Mm. Um, I just thought it was... I thought it was mind-blowing. I love Gina Davis. I just think she's fantastic. Um... But like Rennie Harlan, what did he do? He did um, Nightmare on Elm Street 4? Did he? He was either Nightmare on Elm Street 4 or Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Then he did Die Hard 2, Cliffhanger. And then was it Cutthroat Island? And then was it... Yeah, probably. Long Kiss Goodnight? And then I don't know what he did after that. He did one with Christian Slater where he's sort of like a CIA, mind-reading CIA agent, I think. Um, Die Hard Hunter. 2... It was 90, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was 90. It was quite, It was sort of rushed. Um, but I think Bruce Willis wasn't going to do it, and then, I mean, we've really done it today. Half an hour of it. Initially, they were going to kill off Samuel L. Jackson. You all know this. Uh, and they did a preview. <laughs> everyone hated the idea they killed off his character. Everyone loved his character. But in the film, he's basically, like, gets shot about, like, five times. So he's definitely dead. But in uh, 
to, to bring him back, they had to film extra scenes of him. But they don't really explain. He's not got like, a bulletproof vest on. He's just still alive. He just gets shot a lot. And there's just a bit yeah. where Samuel Jackson's in a car and he starts it up and he shouts, I'm not dead, motherfucker. <laughs> and just like, but he just says it. He announces he's not dead. And the audience goes, okay, he's not dead. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> back on board. He did Deep Blue Sea and Exorcist the Beginning. But um, Exorcist the Beginning was kind of like, hmm. I haven't, se- I haven't seen either Exorcist. I'm not really a big fan of the Exorcist films, but, um, but or Deep Blue Sea, to be fair. Um, the pop uh, trivia fact about Deep Blue Sea is that all of the sharks get killed off in the same way and order that they get killed off in the Jaws franchise. Ah, so the first shark gets blown up, the second shark gets electrocuted, and the third shark... I don't know how it dies at the end of the second one. Probably blown up again. The third one, at the end of the third one, I don't know. The third one, yeah. I prefer, controversially, I prefer Jaws 4 to Jaws 3. Wow. Wow. I quite like Jaws 3. I saw it in 3D (laughs) at the BFI once. That was fun. Oh, I bet it's better. I bet it's much better in 3D. Yeah, it's quite it's, it's like, um, it's very, I mean, like all those 3D films, when you watch them later, you go, that scene seems weird. And you go, right, it's because it's just, uh, it's, it's there to have uh, an effect put on it. Yeah. you lots of shots you, you in that it, kind of sea world place underwater. Yeah, but the, the bit with the shark uh, that is basically moving slowly towards the glass window and then he opens his mouth and then he freezes and then the window shatters. So basically they were trying for the entire film to get the 3D to work properly. And um, uh, there was like a problem with blurring, like the cameras weren't... It was the, basically, it was John Alves who was the production designer of the first two and then he got promoted to... Uh, direct in the third one and he never directed anything again but he, he, he continued working in Hollywood as like a production designer this feels uh, almost like a, a fan show clip show where we just tell lots of little stories we've probably told in other shows I haven't told you I haven't said it but like um, but they couldn't get the cameras to sort of like do the 3D properly and they kept messing it up and then eventually, by the time they got the 3D process working, they'd ran out of time and budget, so all of the special effects were rushed, which is why Jaws 3D, all of the special effects are terrible. And I watched the thing this week, and they basically were saying um, that because the special effects are... <laughs> because the special effects... Because they're 3D sequences, but they're special effects sequences, it means that when you watch... Um, because a lot of the special effects aren't even finished. You, know, you can see kind of like green screen or blue screen stuff where you can actually see through the objects. And uh, yeah, it's, it's rubber. Like the special, I mean, it's awful. How does, this, how does the shark look more fake eight years later than it did when they made the original? And um, when you watch it in 2D, when they show it on television and stuff like that, basically because the 3D didn't work and the special effects are terrible, it means that you spend really long shots lingering on an absolutely appalling blue screen special effect of like an underwater submarine. And it's on screen for like 10 seconds while you're just watching these terrible special effects. And you're thinking, why are you so in love and awe of these special effects? 
It was because in 3D, it obviously was meant to have worked a lot better, but it didn't. It was rubbish. And at least Jaws 4, I think the opening of Jaws 4 is good, when the guy gets eaten on the boat while they're Christmas caroling. Uh, do you know what? It's been, it has been so long since I've seen Jaws 4, to be fair. I can't even remember any of it. Genuinely spooky. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's really creepy, that bit, when he's calling for help, but he can't because they're singing Christmas carols. I think mm. it's creepy. And then I think you know, he's done three films, so Jaws is entitled to a holiday in Barbados, <laughs> or wherever he goes, the, Baha- the Bahamas. It's when Jaws was on Parkinson, he said that joke, didn't he? When he was asking, oh, have you just done this uh, for the money or whatever? And, he's, and Jaws said, yeah, well, I've got a nice house, thanks, Parkinson. Yeah. 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 And then he bit his fucking face off. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, Okay, right, we've got a song now. <laughs> we do. Yeah! <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. And we're back! We're back! We're back! We were literally just saying that the original title for Jaws 3D was uh, Jaws 3 People Nil, wasn't it? It was, and yeah. It was originally conceived as a spoof. So Much Joe like. He was going to do it, I think, wasn't he? He was one of the directors. And then, much like um, uh, Superman 3 was like, oh, we won't do a proper Superman, we'll do Richard Richard Pryor meet Superman, which they actually did. And then um, with Star Trek 4, it was Eddie Murphy meets Star Trek. And then that, that, that didn't happen. But, like, you know, I get, it's weird, isn't it? Because it feels like quite early on in a franchise where Jaws 1 and Jaws 2 are just... Like, Jaws 1 is the best one of the best films... It's not my favourite film, but I'd say it's the best film ever made, maybe. Or the most... I don't know. It's just so good. Mm. Um, but I'm not like... I wouldn't say, like, Jaws is my favourite film. No, I'm the it's same. Not. It's not, I but think, I, You can't fault it at all. It's I'm great. Hard, you're hard-pressed to find a film that does what it does as well as it does. Mm. You know, sets out to do a thing, and it does it, and it's so good. And it's still good 45 years later. Fucking hell. But you're right, um, it's funny that they obviously had no faith in, like, a long-term franchise. It's almost like, we've already done two of these, we can't possibly just do a third one. Well, they were new, because Jaws 2 was the first film to ever have a two after it. Mm. So the, the idea that franchise... But Jaws 2 is a valid kind of, like, entry in the thing. So when they get to Jaws 3, you just, start like go, oh, my God, this is nosedived so... It's it's absolute shit. It's so terrible. It's kind of like... But the fact that they made two decent films, one excellent film and one decent film, and then by the third one they were like, let's just do a spoof, yeah? It's kind of like... It's, it's weird that they would have... I mean, are there any other franchises where... They literally just change genre. Mm. Like, uh, maybe, maybe Evil Dead, where the first one is like a de- is a proper stab. At, um, no pun intended. It's a proper stab at a, a genuine horror film, where there isn't really any comedy in it, other than the fact that it's sort of like you can. It's a bit creaky, and people laugh at it ironically sometimes. But it's kind of like none of the jokes are really intended in Evil Dead. And then Evil Dead 2 is like, we'll do like a comedy, a screwball comedy, or like a slapstick comedy. And then it, Army of Darkness is like, well, we're going to make a a fantasy epic. And like each film is like in a different genre. But like to take Jaws and Jaws 2, which are basically the same, exact same tone, they've cast almost the exact same 
supporting cast, they've kept it as, as similar to the original as possible. It feels like an apps, an actual follow-up, and then to just like go now, nah, we've done that now. Well, um, Halloween. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's the third one of that. Well, Halloween, and then John Carpenter didn't want to do Halloween 2, so he wrote it, and then someone else directed it, and then when they did Halloween 3, he said, right, it will be about... It's not going to be about Michael Myers this time. It's going to be about um, kids buying uh, masks uh, for Halloween that melt their faces when they watch an advert on TV. And everyone's like, okay. <laughs> With that go. They give it a go. People hate it because Michael Myers isn't in it, and then they bring Michael Myers back for the fourth one. But... Um, and Wayne's World, so it's uh, it's good. <laughs> um, right, yeah. Anyway, you asked me, have I been to the gym? And can I flick peanuts like Superman? And um, my answer to that is Jaws 3D. So, um, what have you? We've both seen the same film this week, haven't we? Yeah. We've both been to the cinema, not together. Uh, we're very socially distanced. Very yeah. socially. Distanced. What day did you go? I went on Monday. Monday. Ah, I went on Sunday. So we're socially distanced by 24 hours. And did you see it at the BFI? No, I saw it at um, the Hackney Picture House cinema. So has it had a re-release? Hmm. It's had a re-release, and it's like meant to be a new restoration of the film Memories of Murder. Yeah, Memories of Murder. So, tell us a little bit about Memories of Murder. Well, it's uh, like an earlier Bong Joon-ho movie who did Parasite, and it's basically been re-released by the, the distributors of Parasite because I think they figured that so many people saw that <laughs> won't have seen any other of his films. And I think mm. this is one that's like a sort of thriller, but very different in terms of Parasite. It's much more... I mean, it's based on a true story, and is is much more... Um, sort of gritty and um, and it's like a sort of countryside a countryside homicide film um, serial killer movie and it's, well, I it's, thought I thought it was kind of like it's sort of like a Korean um, version of Zodiac mm, yeah like that was one of the most and also when I was um, when I was Offered the ticket, I thought, oh, this seems like a bit of a downer. And then uh, when I saw who made it, um, uh, what's his name again? Bong Joon-ho. Bong Joon-ho. Right. Um, I'm surprised by how many films of his I've seen. Hmm. Uh, and if you, if, you, if you were kind of like, oh, I, 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 other than Parasite, I mean, he made Snowpiercer. Which was a great film, and he also made. A, I thought. I thought Okja was really great on Netflix. No, I never saw Okja. I, I thought it was really great, and then uh, and, and years ago he made a film called The Host, which I really loved. But I've not seen this film, and I was a little bit. I'm not sure if I want to come and see this film because I thought it might be kind of like a bit grim, and it was on a Sunday, and it was a sunny day. But um, but yeah, it's yeah, like you said, it's kind of. Um, a countryside... I just... Yeah. A countryside... Well, it's based on Korea's first serial killer, isn't it? So it's a real like, unsolved murder case. And what I think works really well about it is just how tonally... It's, it's tonally sort of true to life. Cause it's, it's so grim. 
and the characters are, are in some ways like terrible people but are really lovable and then you can have scenes where something horrific has happened but you're sort of laughing or stifling a laugh because something funny's happening or something and i, I, just, I, thought, I, think, I can't think of a like a film that's done that as successful no. i thought it was um it was consistently um I mean, it was grim and it was depressing and it was sort of um, sad and horrific and all those other things. It was scary, the bit in the, in the cornfields about halfway through the film. It's absolutely fucking terrifying. Uh, but it wasn't cornfields, it was rice paddies. But, um, but what I wasn't expecting was it for, for it to be like consistently laugh-out-loud funny. I saw it socially distanced at the BFI. It's my first time I've been to the cinema in like seven months. And um, uh, I, I loved being in the cinema. Um, I loved going to actually, um, yeah, be in like a dark room and to like share it, share the, share the experience with other people. Um, but what I realised was, I think the BFI is almost like the polar opposite of the Prince Charles where uh, nobody laughed at anything. <laughs> like, they were dead silent. I think it, maybe it's because it's... We've been, we talked about this before, about, like, um, subtitles. And I think that because it's a foreign film or it's a Korean film and there's subtitles, people think that it's, you know, it's yeah, maybe it's more... They would do otherwise. Yeah, and you go, these are jokes. You know, these, there's a scene quite near the beginning where people keep falling down a hill. And um, and it's it's like a naked gun joke. It's just like it's it's really funny. It's not obviously the tone of it is totally not that, but they've done it in kind of like a real world thing. Like they found a bit of humour in something that would happen in real life. Yeah. And I just think it's but it, when it was funny, it was so funny, and it was probably so funny because it was contrasting with all the dark stuff. Yeah. But. When it was dark, it was really dark, and when it was funny, it was funny. And I think the rest of the people I was in the audience with. Obviously, we're just like going, right, well, they obviously didn't mean to be funny. They didn't intend to be funny. Well, it's like the fucking me doing a picture of me lifting weights. And it's like the lightest weight you can do. And people have gone, oh, well done. And you're like, and I think that, I think, I don't think, I, I don't know, maybe because we're comedians or something, but I think, I think we're more, or I go into films like quite open. Uh, to find the funny, funny side of things, I read when I read *The Beach*, the novel *The Beach*. I read it as a dark comedy. You know, I thought it was really funny and entertaining. And when Danny Boyle made the film, it kind of like extracted all of the dark comedy stuff, and they made it into like this drug thriller. And you go, yeah, but it's not. I mean, you've almost copied the story. You've almost got the story on film, but there's a gap between the tone that I read, and you've read the same book, and what you've made. I just thought it was kind of like... We, so we, when you were the first people, when we went to see that preview of Thunder Road, the Jim Cummings film, we were the first ones who were laughing at the opening scene. I think everyone seemed to take it very seriously. And it's like, it is, but it's also really funny. And it it's felt like funny. it gave people the permission. It felt like we laughed, and other people started laughing. But it's almost like you've got to give people permission to or something. But, yeah, and I don't want to kind of, like, um, you know, pat ourselves on the back and go... I just think it's a weird kind of... Maybe it's just a way that... 
And I don't honestly walk around thinking, yeah, I'm a, I'm a comic. I've got to see things. And I just like, and I don't think like, I don't think my brain is set up any different from anyone else's. But what I am noticing is that, um, that maybe it, maybe I, maybe I see things a little bit differently to how other people see things. Because when you're in a room and there are things that are really funny that are happening and you laugh and you're the only person that's laughing out loud at stuff that is like clearly intended to be funny. And people are going, well, it's a, it's a film about these women that are getting murdered. And you go, yeah, but th that's not the funny part. Mm -hmm. The funny part isn't the fact that women are getting murdered. That's treated with the with, with the seriousness that it, that's required. It's the stuff that's surrounding that and the people. And like you say, those main characters, you'd never have a main character like that in a Western film that is so unlikable, despicable, you know, uh, brutish, they beat up people, you know. Um, and the film really isn't about this unsolved murder case. It's really about kind of like the police brutality in Korea. Um, and the Korean government and all of this other stuff that's going on at the same time, which is why I kind of felt like it. I was surprised when I saw what, that main actor, he hasn't aged at all mm. in between then and um, uh, Parasite. I thought it was made in 2013, so when I found out it was made in 2003, I was just like, fucking hell, there's not a fucking chance in hell that David Fincher hasn't seen that film and he... He put a load of stuff from... Because it's like Zodiac is about three police officers that have all got different techniques that all have to work together on this unsolved crime, uh, unsolved murder case. And then that's what this is. And it's, you know, it, Korea didn't have any serial killers until this. And then when it happened, they kind of, like, didn't really know how to solve it. But it's not really about that. It's not really about Korea's first serial killer. It's about these three detectives and how they kind of, like... Um, they sort of influence and corrupt each other in this sort of different, different methods of doing it, and they're kind of all very different people by the end of it. Yeah, they're all different people, and, and like, roles reverse, and um, I just thought it was... It was just this really... I thought it was incredible. I thought it was an... Uh, we haven't really... What's it called? Memory of Murder... I mean, I just thought it was... I thought it was incredible. I thought it looked incredible. I thought that scene in the rice paddies was like... Uh, I mean, there's lots of scenes, but the one... If you, if you watch it, I mean... I just thought it was quite, it's, there's so much you could say about it that would probably ruin bits of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think really, you just... like, incredible bits of, like... Essentially, there's, there's a scene which really gives tells you, it gives you an insight into the kind of random nature of it. And that's chilling. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just incredibly well done with just these sort of scenes and set pieces and and the sort of red herrings. And the, and I, I knew going in it was an unsolved case. But it, it almost plays like something that wants you to... It sets up these various murder mysteries that feel like plausible solutions and yet you kind of know it's not going to... None of them are going to pay off in that way. And that kind of... Yeah. It's really it's really well done. And you also don't really know whether they've even come in contact with the killer or not mm. by the end. It yeah. doesn't give you... But, like, that's not the point of the film. Anyway, yeah, I think it's one of... Oh, I don't know. It's such an amazing... It's such an incredible film. 
I loved it. I loved, I loved um, all of the scenes where they're eating as well. Yes, yeah. I always a bit when that, like, I'd love to go to that restaurant. You just, I always think that, like, I'd love to be there. Love to go in that restaurant, <laughs> but like when when the when the when the guy sort of like falls through the door, <laughs> and it's just kind of like it's he, he's in the, this little upstairs bit, and he comes through a hatch, and it's just kind of like that's just funny. Do you know what I mean? It was like it was so many- and I also say the bit afterwards where like he feels bad, and he so he's bought him a pair of uh, Nike trainers, and he got the guy from Seoul reading them, and it's like it's not, not that's his Knicks. It's not they're it's not Nike. The, they're not they're not Nike trainers. They're nice trainers. <laughs> and uh, I guess it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, but again, you know, you've just, like, uh, spoiler alert. Do you know what I mean? It's like the mm. whole film, I just thought, I thought it was just brilliant. And the way it sort of, like, swaps. Yeah, but the food bit, when he's eating at his desk and he's eating food at his desk, and then uh, they go to the restaurant and they're eating in the restaurant, and then later on he's in that cafe just before they have that fight and um, and he's eating in the And I just think, oh, just... I found that in Parasite too. But yeah, there are bits where there's just cops eating at their desk some sort of convenient, like, noodles, and you go, God, that looks delicious. Whereas over here, if it was on Prime Suspect, they'd be having, like, a white bread corned beef sandwich or something, and you'd be like, that's horrible. What a depressing thing to eat. Whereas in Korea, just, all the food just looks incredible. They're just conveniently eating because they just want something out yeah. of their desk while they're filling <laughs> yeah. in a police report or something. I, 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 anyway, um, memories, memory of murder. I think, um, I, yeah, I loved it so much. I think he's such a. I know that he got a double Oscar this year, oh. uh, and I think that that is ridiculous. Especially, I thought Parasite was great. I mean, I liked the first half of Parasite, and then it changes into a different film, and I wasn't so on board with the second half. Not that I didn't like it. I, I just, pref- I just enjoyed the first half a lot more. Um, and uh, I just think that the the benefit of him winning the both of the Oscars is that it shines a light on his career and that, you know, there are all of these films that he's made that I didn't realise it had kind of like a, a re-release. I thought it was just something the BFI were doing. I didn't buy the ticket. I only found out on Saturday that there was a ticket going spare. And um, and I wouldn't have, I probably probably wouldn't have occurred to me to go and see it. And I did, and I just thought it was just brilliant. And I preferred it to Zodiac. I preferred it to Parasite. I thought... Um, uh, have you ever seen the John Woo film, Bullet to the Head, Bullet in the Head? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've only seen that on TV, and I remembered it being a masterpiece. And then I think I've seen it reviewed places, and it gets, like, three stars, um, which I... The memory of that film is just absolutely epic and incredible. And it sort of made me feel like that. It made me feel like I'd watched... Because uh, I didn't... It made me feel like I'd actually kind of, like, stumbled on something on TV that was, like, gold dust and just for me. And uh, I felt like that when I saw uh, Bullet Bullet in the Head. Um, yeah, but I just thought... I can't recommend it enough. And if it's a cinema news, then definitely you should go and see it. And you should also, I think if if Okja is still on Netflix, it's the least of those five films, uh, but it's still good. I just, yeah, I love him. He's brilliant. <laughs> Any closing thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Pass it back. 
No, no, I agree. I think everyone should go and see it. I think it's great. I think it's very accessible. It's very dark, but it's uh, but it's brilliant. You know, I loved it. Yeah, but it's it's no it's no darker than Seven. Oh no. Uh, um, and I would say that um, it's probably less dark than Seven. And also, on the flip side of it, it's fucking hilarious. There's so many fun bits in it. Uh, but it's also, like, it's everything. It's terrifying. It's compelling. I think it's that's, that's the real trick of it. Because I think it's like the, it's grim. It's side by side. The comedy is side by side with really grim stuff happening. <laughs> But it does it in films. It feels, it feels like people... It, it makes it seem more real because that's more like what happens in real life. And I think mm-hmm. it's that thing where you, you get that from all sort of detectives in real life or you seem to have that very gallows humour about everything anyway. So I think that stuff kind of makes sense you, that you must be surrounded by so much horrible stuff in your life that actually a lot of the way to get through it is to be funny. Yeah. Well, I even like his catchphrase at the beginning. He uses it like quite a lot, where he calls someone like a damn punk. Yeah, and he just uses it like uh, regardless of who he's talking to, and he'll just like throw it around. And you just think it's such a funny, such a funny insult. <laughs> um, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, I'll give that three out of five. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Uh, and then I also saw uh, Pleasantville and Blast from the Past, which are both average. <laughs> now, the BFI. No, not the BFI. <laughs> uh, what, what did, how did you like going to the cinema again? Oh, you work in a cinema. It was only about four people in a screen, and it was all felt fine. Everyone was very well behaved and had masks on and did it all properly. It was good, very nice, welcomed in the cinema. It was all good experience. Yeah, good. I loved it. I loved it. Right, we're going to do some fan mail now. <sighs> Are you ready, Brian? Yeah, not so bad. I'm ready to go. Here we go. Yeah, you didn't really think that through before you started talking, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you're both well. Bit of a strange one as I'm probably listening to this on my last day as hospital pharmacist. Hello, Karen. I normally catch some of the show during my lunch break. Not sure I'll be able to do that in my new job. I've not been watching anything very intellectual and IFT is still closed, so I'm missing the ritual of tweeting the program at night and getting recommendations. Best film I've seen recently, Sky Documentaries, True Justice, Brian Stevenson's Fight for Equality. Definitely recommend this one. Guilty Pleasures, Behind the Candelabra. I know it's not a great film, but I have to watch it every time it's on TV. I haven't got a problem with Behind the Candelabra. No, I don't think that's a guilty pleasure. I don't think there's such a thing as that. I think it's a very entertaining film. I like it a lot. I think it's great, and Michael Douglas is, is kind of brilliant in it. Yeah, I'm still writing up my law dissertation, and I figure this counts as study. Legally Blonde, I would say, actually probably is a guilty pleasure, so... <laughs> Heated Radioactive. I'd been really looking forward to this one, so disappointed when I watched it. What's Radioactive? It's a thing about Marie Curie. I've not seen it with Rosamund Pike. Oh, right. Oh, God. Right. Well, uh, excellent actress uh, with interesting subject matter. Uh, Karen... Uh, gives it a big thumbs down, so that's disappointing to hear. Love to you both, Karen. Thanks, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Good uh, luck in your new job. 
Good luck in your new job. Uh, thank you for listening. I uh, hope you do get to listen to us. And um, yeah, I listen to the podcast. Blog. There's always a podcast. Get on the who podcast. Di- who directed Behind the Candelabra? Was it Steven Soderbergh? Yeah, Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. Good movie. Cool. I thought it was good. <laughs> His best movie? Probably. I went to see it the same day I saw The Man of Steel. I was so disappointed in Man of Steel that I kind of wanted to, a palate cleanser and then I went to see Behind the Candelabra and it cheered me up. Best, of those two, the best man in cape film. Of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, dear Nick and Nat, how are you boys? Have you watched the new Mulan movie? I love it. Do you like it? What are your thoughts? Cheers, Nicky. Not seen it. Not seen it, but I've heard lots of people like it, and it's a bit of a shame because they've not put it on at cinemas at all. But I read a review that was saying it's by far the most sort of cinematic of those kind of Disney live action films. The, the trailers looked like it was like the only one that really, you know, I thought Beauty and the Beast was fucking terrible. I just thought it was terrible. That that animated film is one of the greatest animated films ever made, and what they did with the fucking all of the scenes that they added were pointless. Uh, I thought the performances were terrible. They changed... I mean, even the fact that they changed the direction of the Beast's horns didn't make sense. It's just like, why have you done that? I, I, I... Yeah, I just think that most of those films are fucking... I thought Aladdin was... Uh, You're coming with me! I thought Aladdin was awful. Um, and Mulan, you kind of like go... Yeah, I think that that actually looks like a proper yeah. film. Yeah, it had the potential to do a bit more with it. Where you think, yeah, you can imagine how you'd do that as a live-action film. And it looks, looks, it looked quite impressive from what I saw of it. The original was um, a big film. The original was a big film, but I don't think it's as iconic as... Um, also, it's like 20 know. quid, isn't it? You pay 20 quid to watch it on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I think they're saying it's like... like a lot of money to see a film that you might not like. You're already subscribed to Disney, and then I think it's in America it's thirty five dollars to to watch it. And you go, yeah, okay. If there's five of you sat around the cinema, uh, sat around the TV screen, it's like five dollars each or however much. Um, so maybe you're kind of like making up for the fact that you're selling less tickets. But I just think that that's I think that's borderline criminal, isn't it? Hmm. Well, it's insane. Would, if it was like the cinema, I probably would have gone. <laughs> uh, if it was on like a big screen or something I could have quite enjoyed that but I don't think I want to pay 20, 20 pounds to see it at home I watched, I watched Dumbo the other day that's fucking awful also I've been watching a bunch of stuff on Amazon Prime which is uh, where you can just rent something for three forty nine. so I'm watching just films from the 80s that I haven't seen for three forty nine. great perfect Three fifty. Yeah. exactly the right price I'm going through Gene Hackman's films, and I'm really enjoying them. Um, okay. Hey, Nick and Nat, I love watching the clips from the show. Actually, that sounds a lot better. That sounds more like Brian Johnson. Thanks for telling me that. Hey, Nick and Nat, I love watching the clips from the show. Nick, you crack me up, as you always look so bored. It's really funny. Lovely show, guys. I'd love to hear Jake chilling all on. Sorted. Thanks, Stevie. Natalie, can we get... Thank you, Jake, Jake, please. Yeah. I'm not bored, I'm just listening. Uh, Hi, Nick and Nat. I love watching... Oh, I've done that one. Hi, Nick and Nat. Have you watched the new Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma? I'm really intrigued by the trailer. What are your thoughts on it? Thanks, Charlotte. No, haven't seen it. Um, no, or the trailer. I don't know what it is. 
everyone just assumes that we've watched everything and barely barely anything. All right. Um, what's her, oh yes, Natalie says yes. We can get Jake Gyllenhaal on. Great. So, um, Look forward. So to that's that. exciting to know. Um, we're going to go to a song now, and then we'll get our guest on. Uh, listen to you after these notes. Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. We are back. We just played a song. It's the second song that we've had this episode, uh, and both of the songs were three minutes long for you, uh, fun. Exactly uh, three minutes. People that like numbers. Um, I'm, uh, my name's Nick. This is um, Daniel Metcalf. And we're joined now by star of stage and screen, uh, Mr. Thomas Coombs. Uh, how you doing? You right, Tom? Not too bad. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you guys. We were just having a... Um, ve- good to see you. Uh, yeah, good. Um, we were just having a, uh, a chat about the fact that uh, both mine and your uh, laptops have died uh, at a very um, crucial time in history. Um, so we're talking to you on your phone, and you yeah. said that you've balanced your phone on uh, two box sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what are those what, what are those boxes? Oh my god, my doorbell has just rung. Christ, this might be the guy who's picking up my laptop to repair it. Can I dive out for one second? I'm so I mean, sorry. This is, oh, this this is, is absolutely this is I'm absolutely sorry, stuff. Right? <laughs> but I didn't realise. Do you know if anything that what I have learned, right, is that you can actually uh hire a man or woman uh to right. come along and pick your laptop up. Yeah. It's actually uh, the bloke who's here to repair it. I'm just going to give it to him. I'm so sorry. That's fine. That's fine. We're talking amongst right, ourselves yeah. right now. I reckon this guy is going to be the best guest we've ever had because he's yeah. going to feel so guilty now that he's going to give us 110%. Yeah, that, yeah? Let's see what yeah. happens. Uh, I, I, I didn't know that a guy would just come over and pick your laptop up. I think I'm going to maybe ask him about that when he gets back. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, it's a game changer. Well, it is really, because, you know, I also need to get, you know, I got my phone nicked in January, and uh, when it got replaced, I got a phone where the internal aerial doesn't work. So I can't actually access the internet at all on my phone. Um, I can't can't access the internet in my bedroom, which is crucial, and uh, I can't access... uh, Anyway... Tom's back. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. What about timing? Bloody hell. That's fine. Uh, you're not the first, and uh, you won't be the last. It's absolutely fine. They, um, said any, they could come any time from nine till five, today or tomorrow, and literally now they come. Um, it's nice. perfect. It's perfect. You're not going to get out of it that easily, Tom. Tell us about these no. boxes. No, hang, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Yeah, sorry, go on. So your laptop, your laptop is broken, right? And you, what, what laptop do you have? A PC or a Mac? I'm, I've never had any Mac stuff. I've always, I stubbornly stuck to Android and PC and all that. Um, and no, I had a really, 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 really crap laptop as lockdown started. And then the slithers of auditions that started coming up said they're all going to be via this. So I bought a new laptop. The webcam was still crap. Um, so I bought a separate webcam. 
it turns out that it's not the webcam's problem, it's my internet that's crap. Um, and then on my new laptop, I spilled a beer two days ago, so that's why the bloke's come and <laughs> picked it up. Sure. It's a nightmare. Okay. But do you, mm, do you know, right. do you think, do they also, do they also handle Macs? Um, well, this is, it, it was Lenovo um, is the make of the thing. Um, and luckily, I just did a, an accidental protection one year thing when I bought it, and I thought, thank God for that because uh, yeah, I think I would have been screwed because uh, it yeah, I, it was quite a lot of beer went on it. So um, oh. yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, maybe at the end of this, you can give me the details, and I can see if I can. Um, that's very helpful. Not normally. Normally, it's nice to have a chat, but it's very rare that I get anything out of it. And this is absolutely cool. perfect. Oh I yeah, sure. Novo um, laptop to sort of see me through and it's it's sort of weird it seems to do weird things it often just seems to bring up it, it seems to do things i don't want it to but i've got I'll, I'll be on the little pad thing and then something else will fly and i don't know why i've done that how are you finding your lenovo yeah i mean um yeah i kind of can see what you mean um i'm definitely not an it man as you might have judged by this conversation so far um uh and yeah, it's doing what I wanted to do it, basically, but uh, Mac people keep going, well, you know, that's you bought a whole new laptop and the webcam's still crap, and that's one of the big reasons I wanted it for, a good webcam, and apparently no PCs have good webcams, and I didn't know that, um, yeah, so. That makes sense. I've gone from a Mac to this, and I feel I feel bad about it, but this is the world now, right? You can't, you, you can't just be an actor. You've got to be tech savvy and become like um know how everything works we've had to come online and learn how to do zoom and do it all this way well, yeah, of course. You know. um yeah. how are you finding it how are you how are you found the last six months um do you mean technical wise laptop wise or <laughs> way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think we're going to change the format of the show and we're just going <laughs> to turn it into an it support show now yeah. um I've had to do, I, I tell you what, I had to do a self-tape the other week, um, audition, that is for people uh, in the real world, where they said, oh, this is, this is a scene, it's a self-tape, uh, just record it by yourself and then send it in. And the scene was um, four people sat around a dinner table having a chat where occasionally I would interject and, and they said, just film that, just go ahead and film that by, I was just like, I don't know the first thing about and it's not a monologue. It's literally, I'm on my own in my flat. I've got to read in all the other characters. How the fuck am I meant to do that? They said, oh, yeah, just go ahead, go ahead and do it. Send it in when, you go, when you've done it. And it's just like, there's no help on that. I find self-tapes difficult. How about you, Tom? Yeah, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I was, I was never a fan of them before even all this started. Um, like, because, as you say, you've got to get, I've got a bit more of the gear now because I've had to, but... Yeah, finding someone to read with and then setting it all up. And then and I, I, I prefer, I think, the immediacy of going in for an audition where you, you, you've got to kind of nail it, one take, maybe two, and then you haven't got to look back at yourself. You can't go, oh, I was a bit shit there. And you could spend hours trying to perfect. So, and you, I think, yeah, so I'm not a fan, but it seems to be like it's going to have to get used to it, all the actors, because um, it's going to be the way for a bit. But you've also got that element where you can do it again. So yeah, yeah but, perfect, will it? You would always be able to look yeah. back on it and go, I could do that better. Exactly. Yeah, but I like, yeah. 
I like I like to be able to look in their eyes and know that I haven't got the job on the spot rather than <laughs> having to wait. <laughs> no, no, and you could that's it. You can't get direction as well because there's no one there to go. Well, that's not at all what could you could you maybe do it like this because you just yeah. So I'm going to have to get used to it as we all are, but I'm definitely not a not a fan um, and technology and all that together. It's just. Yeah, I had a, a live Zoom audition the other day, and there was a clown. You know the uh huh, uh huh, like um, on the on the, the somewhere. It just kept coming past every two seconds, and it it was not in keeping with the tone of the scene. Nothing I could do about that. Like, <laughs> what outside your house? <laughs> yeah, some guy. He sounded like it was on a bike. You know, like it sounds like the clown horns. Um, <laughs> if that's the right word for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Just like halfway yeah, through the scene, it was. It was being recorded, and they said, yeah, this is going to be sent off to the producers. And I was like, oh, fuck's sake. Well, that's, I don't know. I don't, um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't I, I very rarely ever got auditions for anything. I think people couldn't really see me playing anyone else but me. Well, I got, <laughs> got asked to do an audition once, um, and it was sort of a lot of improvising. I went down there, and I was quite happy to be there. But I, I, I do it so rarely that when I got to the audition, I forgot what the word audition was. I couldn't remember. <laughs> and um, so I went into the office and I just went in there. I went, hello. Yeah, I'm here. Um, my name's uh, Nathaniel Metcalf and I'm, I'm here for the uh, one of them job interviews that actors have. I said. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically it, though, a job interview that actors have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what were, you, uh, what were you working on just before lockdown happened? Um. So literally just before lockdown, um, uh, it, uh, it was um, a film called Boiling Point um, that we we managed to get in the can kind of just literally before Boris did the whole, that's it, definite. It, it was already dodgy. The last three days of filming, no one was out and about, like all the uh, soaps had sold out of everywhere. And, and we were, this particular film we're doing, it's all set in a kitchen in this... Um, quite a busy restaurant and it's all about Stephen Graham's character who's a head chef and all the pressures that he's got but it's so it's such a big set loads of people in one because it's all set in this restaurant it's never set anywhere else so all the crew all the cast so every day we had all these protocols coming in and we had uh, it's done in one take as well that's the other thing so it's an hour and a half film with one take. So we gave ourselves, I think two a night doing night shoots, two opportunities to film it until they were happy with it two a night for like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But I think on Tuesday it was getting so like the whole world was shutting down and the producers were getting wary that someone was going to get the virus and pass because it would have gone through us like wildfire. And then, um, so yeah, we got, they got one they were happy with and they were like, let's just, let's just call it, call it a day there. So the film is uh, is in one continuous take. Yeah, and there's no like hidden cuts or anything. No, no, we saw a little sneaky screening of it. Um, no, and they were they were kind of that was what they wanted to be true to that because they, that that was the whole point of it. Um, and yeah, there's it, it, yeah, it's testament to it that we saw in the little sneaky screening that we saw of it that you don't you forget that it's one take because it's it. This, the camera works quite clever, but um, yeah, there's definitely ones where people went, uh, oh, the technical side of it was better on that take, but the acting was better on that take. Um, you know, the cameraman slightly bumped into that. The lighting wasn't as good there. 
Um, and it was all as well. It was because the other reason it varied from quality to take to take was because um, it was improvised. There was like, a very loose board. Oh, like, yeah. So like, we've got a, this section, this, this argument's got to happen. Uh, with that food has got to be served at that table. You've got, it was all choreographed. We spent two days choreographing it, but the actual dialogue was whatever happens, happens. We had a loop. Oh my God. So that made it even more like, you know, sometimes I dropped shit one take and I think actually in the real film and um, they were like, well, that's the one we're going for. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. But um, it is what it is. That's what I was going to say, but there must be bits as well where the bits where like you'd improvise a bit and go, oh, that's nice. And then the, it's, it's, in, like, it's in last night's one. And you go, oh, we're not going to put that out. Yeah, exactly. It, not everyone is going to be firing on all cylinders the same every take. Um, so Are they you just work for the food while this is happening. You're all people cooking and things. Yeah, they got the real chef in uh, Tom Brown. He's kind of um, he, he, he's a, a, a real chef, and I think he's done a bit of TV celeb chefing. And um, he he trained all the actors from scratch how to cook the separate dishes. So they were doing it live. It was a real hot kitchen. Um, it kind of, yeah, it kind of added to it because it was supposed to be a really stressful environment, um, and uh, added to the stress that you might all be about to get COVID at any point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one wanted to touch each other, but like uh, people did. People were sharing food, and you know, in the restaurant, the essays were all like <laughs> feeding each other, and yeah. So it was a, it was what, a um, COVID. Sorry. Were you cooking? No, no, I'm. Um, I can't think. It's not giving it away any sort of degree. I, I play a, um, a, a health inspector who comes in. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have to cook. <laughs> yeah, luckily. Oh, but that's a shame because you would have, like, been taught, like, how to cook a dish and you'd have left with, like, an extra skill. An extra skill? No, that's right. That, that's true. Um, yeah, I was a bit envious of people that there was all sorts of – it was quite posh of oysters and all that and how to get them out and how to, um, you know, prepare them. Um, but I learned other things. I learned about how to, uh, how to judge if food is safely being prepared. <laughs> yeah, sure. For a film like that, was it literally you going on, had you, did you have to rehearse it and stuff for days or was it just you kind of get the set up and you know the scenes and you just go for it? Um, yeah, so we, we literally had, like two or three days of rehearsal and um, Phil, the director, would rehearse different sections. Um, like the uh, the kitchen staff would get a bit of a rehearsal and then um, some of the, the, the diners would. But then we'd have to go into a group rehearsal, obviously, where we're choreographing the whole thing because obviously it's improvised, but movement-wise, the, the DOP, the camera operator, needs to know where he's going um, and the lighting where what needs to be lit. So, um, yeah, there was quite a, that was really important, all the rehearsals. So um, we had a rough idea, and then we could sort of play within those kind of limits. Um, so the whole yeah. project then, from beginning to end, from when you got involved in it, was how long? Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, casting and auditions and stuff aside, it was like literally we met on, I'd say, well, my side of it they were doing pre-production and preparing stuff that wise but when all the actors got involved like two weeks because they did like a week of rehearsal with various groups and us all together wow. and then well maybe even less than that a week and a half because then we filmed it we did have a week to keep trying it so we could have five days worth of takes 
but yeah, we we did on like day two. The producers were like, yeah, we're we're happy with that. Like, let's not chance it. So, yeah, that that was kind of the beauty of it as well. That we, they, they, you know, that you're making a film, but it won't drag on for hours because it's it's. And the edit was obviously not hard for them because it is what yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Trim it, crop it, slightly. Um, yeah. So, so, oh god, that's incredible. So you had five days, but you only used two. And yes, yeah, we did. We did. Um, yeah, we did Monday and we did uh, night shoots. We did two on a Monday, and they were kind of like quite iffy, and everyone was still feeding them around, feeding around uh, what was what, and ironing out shit, and then. So the Tuesday, I think the first one on the Tuesday was really good. Um, and they were really happy with it, but there was a few technical issues. And then the last one on the Tuesday was technically perfect. And the camera operator was like, fucking yes, like, but they, everyone else and the producers were like, but the performances were better in the other one. So I think they went for the previous one. Um, yeah. And all the time you're making it, are you thinking it's going to get cancelled any second? Like, <laughs> they're just going to pull the plug on this? Yeah, because all that preparation, especially all the producers in the company that are, like, they've been working on it for, like, a year, all the pre-production stuff, and it would have been gutting if, like, so, yeah, it was, like, touch and go, but a lot of relief, yeah. Do you think that um, having sort of, I mean, how, how big a background in theatre do you have? Um, like, yeah, fairly. Like, I mean, yeah, like I sort of started out, I still do theatre, but I did more of that, or way more of that, as a lot of people do, I guess, starting out after I left drama school. Um, uh, so, yeah, more more, more so screen stuff late, lately, but definitely a whole lot of theatre previously. Yeah. Do you think that's fed into, fed into this? Or, I mean, I... I don't know. It's different, isn't it? I, I'm just recording some uh, music at the moment, and whenever the red light comes on, you know, you do like a run-through, and then whenever the red light comes on, they all of a sudden you fuck everything up. And it's like, yeah, I can do this, but it's as soon as, as, soon as you hear the word action, then all of a sudden there's like a different amount of pressure on you. Oh, and, definitely, yeah. Like, and, and, and as you say, like, it is like the theatre aspect of it that it's, you can't just go again. So I... I, I um, I'm kind of in it more towards the beginning. Like, don't get me wrong, if I cocked up, I would still be mortified. But I, more later on, if someone had cocked up big time in just before it was about to finish, that would have been a nightmare. Uh, oh, my so, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, so there is that element of, like, that definite, like, pressure of... Um, so I think, yeah, maybe maybe the kind of, like, now or never of theatre training helped some 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 of us um improvisation like having a bit of experience of that i think helped me personally and um stephen graham's like a master of that so like everyone just took his lead if you know what i mean that really but, but also having it improvised means that there aren't any lines to fuck up do you know what i mean so that's like, true that's true so yeah like, you're not like coming in at the 89th minute and then getting your line wrong you could literally say anything at that point as long as it was a coherent sentence and kind yeah. of like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, and even if it wasn't, because in real life, sometimes, isn't it, you say something and you correct yourself. So as long yeah. as you correct yourself and don't pretend you've not said something nonsensical, I guess, uh, um, it was fine. <laughs> it was more like the, the practical things. Like, it was, yeah, it was just more like if, if that wasn't over at that table at that time, then that scene at that table couldn't happen. So 
um, there was various panic behind, because when a camera was over there, our actors were scurrying over going, what the fuck's next? What the fuck's next? Um, so it was more practical things than dialogue that was important, really, yeah. Did, did you see? Um, did you see the film uh, *A Star Is Born* with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga? No, no, I haven't seen the original *Zor* or that. No. Um, yeah, because there's like five versions of that film. Um, it's just really weird. There's like a couple of moments in that film where um, Bradley Cooper has sort of because uh, um, he wrote it and directed it and produced it and was in it, and Lady Gaga has like a couple of moments where she does some improv. But they really stand out because she gets she gets stuff wrong and then she corrects herself. And you just think, like, she's set with her dad and she goes, look at you eating your breakfast, I mean your dinner. And it's kind of like, whoa. And then there's a bit when she's talking to Bradley Cooper and she goes, oh, my God, you're a terrible boyfriend. And he goes, your boyfriend? She goes, I mean my husband. You're my, you're my husband. Uh, and he goes, there better be your husband. And you're just like, why did you leave them in? <laughs> oh, so you're saying that bit of impro didn't really work, no? Well, no, but it's sort of like, they just look like mistakes, and you just think that... Oh, they were like the obvious, dad... obvious errors, so you'd know that he's not your boyfriend, he's your husband. It's not like, yeah, yeah it's not like, it's your husband, like you're filming out of sequence, you're a bit flustered, you've forgotten what, whether it's a breakfast scene or a dinner scene, uh, and you just would assume that I would... And Bradley Cooper's obviously in love with her, and he's gone, oh, right, well, you know... Um, this looks real. Yeah, this is the sort of thing a real person would do. But as an audience member, you're looking at it going, well, she messed her line-up. Use a different take. <laughs> oh, so it was definitely, it was confirmed that a lot of it was improvised then. Well, I think they did, like, they did takes where stuff was improvised, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, watch it. What's, or not, I don't mind. <laughs> but, but, but it doesn't look like anything other than uh, a mistake that they've left in the film twice, though. If it happened once, you'd go, sure. But it happened twice, and you just like go, that's not a character quirk. That's literally... He, he should have cut that out. Yeah, that's someone... Yeah, yeah, taking themselves out of character and quite obviously, yeah, trying to, trying to get back to it. Yeah. yeah. When can we... Yeah. The boiling point, or is that all up in the air now as well? Is that like, do we know anything about release or anything yet? No, no, like that's all up in the air. Yeah, they literally, they don't know. I think they're, they're trying to do the whole festival thing, um, perhaps before a release. But um, yeah, as, as is all this at the moment, they, it's all kind of up in the air. So um, who directed it? Who, who, who was making the film? Uh, Phil Barantini. Um, yeah, he's um, he was an actor. Um, he was in Band of Brothers um, back in the day and uh, gone into directing lately. Um, yeah, and he made a short film out of this first with Stevie, uh, Stephen Graham, and they decided to expand it into a feature. Um, but yeah, he's great. He's really good. Yeah. I love Stephen um, Graham. It's incredible. I loved, um, what was the Shane Meadows thing he did earlier this year? The um, Virtues. The Virtues, incredible. Yeah, man, that was great. Well, so he's nice guy to work with, right? He's a good, he's a good egg. He comes across very well on online and stuff. Yeah, he, he generally, yeah, he's 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 he's, he's a, yeah, a good person as well. as obviously a, a very very good actor, and he, uh, yeah, he, he sort of takes obviously his work seriously, but not himself. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah. you saved me as well. The Sky Atlantic series was that just before that? Is that or is that the most recent thing that's been on air? Um. 
Yeah, uh, trying to think now. Um, yeah, that is. Yeah, that was the most read that came out in um, was it April or May. So like quite early on in lockdown. Um, and yeah, we filmed that like this time last year. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's the second series though, right? So you did Save Me. And then the second series is called Save Me Too, as in T-O-O. That's it. Yeah, the old clever play on words there. Yeah. And what if there's a third series? Uh, we're all talking about that. There's, there's, <laughs> it's a tricky one, that. There's nothing. We're like, save me 3D and have it in 3D at the cinemas. And then, uh, That's yeah. the best way of doing it. That's the best way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, who knows about that? That's all up in the air. With, but, yeah, naming it wise, Lenny reckons he shot himself in the foot because the second one, you can't, you can't really go on from that in terms of the titles. <laughs> no. Um, what was it like making it? Um, yeah, like, uh, definitely my favourite filming experience, um, I think. Well, yeah, both both series, just um, the dialogue and uh, the, the, the characters um, and the actors. It was, yeah, just definitely a, a bit of a dream, really, um, and quite local to where I'm, I'm living at the moment in Bermondsey Way, all film around there, so it was, it was really easy to get to. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's what happens. <laughs> Of course, it was the nearest to my house. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I could be that picky about my work, but it was uh, it was definitely like yeah, really handy. I could walk there, but they're like no, 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 because they just obviously they don't trust actors to be on time, so they they, they make sure they're picked up by someone and all that. Even though I could literally just around the corner. Um, yeah, um, are you a South London person in general. You are you from South London? Uh, no, uh, Essex, yeah, uh, South End, Leon C, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Do, you know, do you know the pink toothbrush? I do, yeah, yeah, Rayleigh. Yeah, yeah. we had the guy that runs the, that owns the pink toothbrush on a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I think I saw a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, oh, shit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, small old world. Uh, yeah, and my mate used to, used to DJ at the pink toothbrush, but yeah, anyway, yeah. I've been to visit him in uh, South End quite a lot. And, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good to There's not many, places, not many places like it in South End, you know. It's, a, a bit of a, it's more known for its sort of clubs and God knows what. And there was about two places I liked, and one of them was a pink toothbrush, basically. The rest of them were, were a bit ravey for me, but yeah. Well, still love that. Um, right, so one of my dad's favourite TV shows is Wallander, right? Um, you were in Wallander. Was for, yeah, 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 pop up, yeah, in one episode, yeah, yeah. So tell us about when it, what it was like when you were in Wallander. My dad listens to this show and um, he will love this. Um, yeah, so like, that, that, it, was, it was a bit unusual in the fact that um you don't usually get rehearsals as you probably know like for, for for a lot of screen stuff and tv but um yeah kenneth branner is a producer on it and he wanted rehearsals so we got a little bit of a rehearsal read through with him in london before we went out to film it in sweden um so that was that was unusual and nice and i've not I've figured out since that's quite a rarity you don't often get that um, no, you wouldn't even get a read through usually. Is that is that normal now? I mean, like you get kind of like usually like a cast read through, like table read thing. But then, as in as in a rehearsal, like 
just literally as you're about to film it, everyone will read maybe the scene once, but you, you not not work through it and work through the bones of it as much. So yeah, it was a really nice. kind of nice. Getting working with Branner, isn't it? He's going to bring all that with him. He's not going to. He's not going to do without rehearsal. No, no, exactly. Oh fuck you! Know, you're having a laugh. Oh, this is. I can't answer that doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> oh god can i be one second i'm so oh, sorry yeah, we're fine i mean i'm so sorry i'm so sorry it's fine but yeah so you learn your lines and then you show up and then um and then they say action well yeah i guess just... that makes sense i guess rehearsals of that kind of tv stuff is probably a thing of the past it's horrible though it's horrible you think you might not safe... know the people yet or anything you're probably like no. uh tangentially just a bit like Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And now you've got to play uh, boyfriend and girlfriend or something on something. Or yeah, I think that you try and sort of like do a little bit of getting to know you stuff before if you had to do stuff like that. Oh, so but, sorry. What was that? I think it's a shower part. I think. Okay. <laughs> They're all coming today. Everything's falling apart. I need new parts of everything, and they're all coming today. That's all right. Um, so sorry. Is that, is that a bungle off of Rainbow on your t shirt? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, times three. Yeah, for some reason. Yeah. I was going to ask that. I thought it was. <laughs> um, are you a big fan of Rainbow? Oh, I mean, he's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mate's mum used to be the floor manager on Rainbow, and whenever they used to do a story on Rainbow, uh, she used to slip in uh, the name of their cats so that all of the stories would be about my mate's cats. It's a fun, really? fun little story. That's fan club. <laughs> um, yeah, go on. You're just in the middle of telling us how great it was to be on Wallander. Uh, um, yeah, what was the saying? But basically, yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, in this little seaside town called uh, Ishtad, I think it's pronounced, Y-S-T-A-D. Um, yeah, and, and and Ken was lovely. Ken, I don't know him that well. Kenneth was lovely. Um, and, <laughs> um, and, yeah, the, the, one of the other slightly different things was they, he likes to shoot the close-up first, which is again different from i've done on other stuff because he thinks you get the most truthful reaction the first time you're going to film it so he wants to get right in there and then film the wider stuff as it goes on if anyone's interested in that sort of stuff well, that um, makes sense because yeah. otherwise you want the wider shot first that's going to cover everyone so if you run out of time or whatever you've already got the main shot right does that is that why they do it i think so yeah and then like for continuity can can be a bit of a uh, 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 like a thing I think so if you're starting off wide and then you've got to recreate that as you're as you're going in but like I, I, that's another thing I think so he thinks you don't want to worry about that when the camera's really on you and you're catching like the, the sort of truth and essence of someone you don't want to be thinking about shit I picked up a pint in the wide then and um yeah so I think he's, he was onto something I've not really worked like that um any other time and actually if your schedule's good there's no reason I think you won't have time to do the rest of it right you'll you'll get it all done you're just doing it in a different order yeah 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 so yeah it was it, well, that was good good old ken he knows his onions he knows he his onions. he's been around a bit yeah <laughs> so do you know what you're doing next or is it all up in the air now is it all things 
cancelled and changed schedules and all that a year? Yeah, like totally all up in the air. Um, yeah, there's a, like, a couple of things um, been up for, but like theatre is obviously completely shut down. They're doing a few social distance um, type performances now, but um, filming has started to get back up, but it's still apparently nowhere near um, like the level it was. Um, so, yeah, I think there's generally like more competition for, for the work that's being made because there's not as much out there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I hope, hoping I'm going to be employed again sometime. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so let's talk about some of your favourite things, right? Um, your favourite song is Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears, which, uh, coincidentally, uh, is the song that they use in the opening credits of Kenneth Branagh's Peter's Friends. Um, so why is why is that your favourite song? The soundtrack's good to that film, actually. I've never seen the film, but the soundtrack, yeah. Don't, don't ruin the soundtrack by watching the film. <laughs> um, it is a really good soundtrack. It is a really good soundtrack. How, how come that's your favourite song, then? I don't know. You know, I panicked, actually. I was about to say a Beatles song. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 do, I do genuinely love that song. Um, and I thought, oh, fuck it. Because I usually, if I get asked that question by anyone, I'll just go, yeah, uh, uh, the Beatles, something. But I thought, no, it's just boring yeah. now. I keep saying that. Um, even though it, it's up there. And I, I do love, I never get bored of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And it's kind of prescient. If that's the right word at the moment, I think. Um, I think some of the lyrics. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How, old are think. How old are you, Tom? I'm 38. 38. Okay, so you would have been, like, I guess you would have been the kid when that came out. Is it? Is it like an early song? Well, well so would you, Matt. You're only a couple of years older. Oh, yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, but is, I mean, like, is it one of those things that you remember from childhood oh yeah i think there's probably a little bit of nostalgia when you hear like a, like a, a an 80s banger definitely mm. yeah exactly. I get probably that, little... um eternal flame by the bangles oh that's yeah I mean, I mean, find it. it takes me back makes yeah. me very emotional that that song i don't know yeah. why i imagine as an eight-year-old or something but it really uh really moved me <laughs> really relate to all that uh that heartache at um uh, eight years old <laughs> I think, oh, yeah. I think songs from those eras really do like stay with you. The ones that are around when you're you're little, I don't think that they're sort of ingrained in a way that I think other things aren't. That often have a special place for me. I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's that one. Um, there was one. You, you hear it quite a lot now on uh, the old uh, more cheesier radio stations with the whole. Um, uh, you're the, you're the voice. You're the voice. Try and understand it. Um, and you're the voice. Try and understand it. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a, that gets me every time. It takes me, you know, that's, yeah. I feel like in the, in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the mid, in, in the eighties, it was sort of like, there was like all of the production that they had from the eighties, but they were still sort of trying, trying to make grown up pop songs. But because they were so catchy, they appealed to kids. And then when you get to the 90s, then it was like pop songs were exclusively made for kids. Where you have like Steps and S Club 7 and uh, Aqua. And you had all of like these kid stuff. And then you had kind of like rock music, like Britpop and Oasis and 
uh, Blur, which was kind of like more grown up. But there wasn't kind of like that song, those songs that they released that appealed to everyone. And like a song like Everyone Wants to Rule the World was kind of like, it had like lyrics and tunes that you could pick up as a child. But they actually have like grown up connotations in the real world. And so it's sort of like will age with you. Yeah. And like Eternal Flame is like a grown up, uh, a grown up pop song where the bangles were kind of like this, this girl band. And, like, you didn't really have much of that in the 90s where it's kind of, like, was cross-generational. That's true, actually. Yeah. Good night. I've just... Yeah, no. I've just... I've just... I've just... I've just... I've just... I've mind-blowing. Yeah, that's... The 80s always... Well, it did get a bit of a hard rep, didn't it? But it's... Uh, bad, hard rep, bad rep. But it's... It's got some fucking great songs. But you had stuff like Kylie Minogue, just sort of like the tail end, which was kind of like for kids. And then that's where all of those other pop bands sort of like were like, oh, there's loads of money in this. But it felt like things used to be kind of like a little bit more, you know, it would work for kids. But when you grow up, you realise that your favourite song was about something that you, something else. Like Eternal Flames about visiting Elvis's grave. Is it? And you go, yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Well, I did, is the thing. I've remembered it. I was eight, but I remembered it, yeah. But, but I'm assuming a lot of people didn't know that. I was oh. kind of like a real source of knowledge in the playground. I was a clever, a clever, kind of a clever kid. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, you've, got a great, you've got a great list of um, favourite films, which I like, because I like how kind of eclectic they all are and how sort of stretched of the genres. And they're all kind of bona fide <laughs> classics, I think. Yeah, oh, cheers, got, cheers. On your uh, favourite film list, Jaws, we were just talking about Jaws, uh, Back to the Future, Goodfellas, yeah. Young Frankenstein, which is a great film, uh, Mary Poppins, This is England, Carlito's Way, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Carlito's Way is a good choice, because that's, often we'll, people will mention Scarface, but people forget how good Carlito's Way is. I think it's better than Scarface. I think it's better than Scarface. Oh really? Hmm. Yeah, like, uh, it's it's a cracking film. Um, I, yeah, I, sometimes it's a bit of a tie-up between. I think I even prefer Dog Day Dog Day Dog Day Afternoon over Scarface a little bit. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Carlito's Way is great. It has got it's got this narration over it as well, which is a bit different. Um, yeah. Which could like not work, but it totally works. Yeah. I really like Scarf, um, Carlito's Way, sorry, it just starts with the sort of tragedy that you kind of know how it's going to end the whole way through. Yeah. There's not a question mark that it's going to end well because you're told within uh, the opening credits. Yeah. Up to that point. So it has that, like, um, there's, there's that bit, isn't there, where um, um, uh, Sean Penn kind of fucks up and you just know your heart's in your mouth and you just go, oh, God, this is... You can't come back from this now. And it's just no. an awful sort of sinking feeling during the film where you're just kind of... But it's great for the film. It just makes you want to sit in your chair and be like, oh, I can't I can't really watch this. I love yeah. it. I love it. Sinking feeling. Was that a pun on what happens? Sinking feeling. I know, but let's say it was. And I'm clever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's great. Yeah. Sean Penn as well. Yeah, Sean Penn. He's in that film. Yeah, it's really so good. Yeah, yeah. He's well, so such a twat. Um, in a film. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, he does listen. Um, <laughs> he's a big fan. He's a big... 
But when you talk about um, boiling point, I mean, I was thinking about that scene in Goodfellas when uh, they go from outside through the kitchen into the uh, into the nightclub yeah. and they sit on the front. Yeah. And that's what a three-minute sequence. And apparently, how how many days did that take to light? It took like four days to light that. And then they did it. And then it's a three it's this three-minute sequence where they go through this entire kind of like restaurant. And that's what I was thinking about um, uh, when you were talking about boiling point. Yeah, next time you watch Goodfellas, you'll be like, is that it, Martin? Is <laughs> <laughs> that it? Three minutes? Uh, pisses on that. Pisses on that. Right, so, um, no, Embarrassing. I'm sure. Embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that was, that's such, a, that's such a, a great scene. Never get bored of watching that. Um, but it's kind of opposite in a way, in terms of slightly, it's very smooth and following them around and, like, very cinematic, whereas... I think on boiling point, they've tried to make it, like I think I said a bit earlier, like you almost forget it's been, it's one take and it's being filmed. You feel like the camera's organically part of like the the people you're with and you're, you're in there. So it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of, bit of a different vibe to old Marty's uh, long shot. Yeah. I would say something that connects all your favourite films on this list is they strike me as they're all films that if you catch any of it on telly, you can just get totally sucked into it and watch right to the end. Oh, my God. Yes, I think that's a, that's a definite. Jaws, it's got to be on about at least once a week, and it's bad, yeah, if you catch that. It's on, uh, yeah. It's I thought you meant you watched it once a week. I was like, wow. <laughs> no, they, they do put it out at least once a week, I'm sure, on <laughs> I, I, ITV, whatever. Um, yeah, you just can't. It's so good, the performances and... Yeah, and you, because of the shark, kept thinking. Obviously, they they said they had loads more time to 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 work on their characters and fuck around and improvise. And I think that just just makes it really. Yeah, the, I the feel like that. Yeah, those, those, are, my, those okay. are my favorite scenes. Those are my favorite scenes. So the scenes between uh, even the early scenes between Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider. I just think that those two. I, obviously, Robert Shaw is like, like as soon as he turns up. He kind of dominates everything. But I think Roy Scheider is definitely completely overlooked in that film. Everyone always mentions Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus, And uh, Roy Scheider's got like, he's like the glue that holds these two sort of like separate guys together. And he does all the subtle, like when he looks down at his appendix scar on the boat and he doesn't oh. say anything, he's just like, I'm not even going to bother getting involved in this, you know. You just yeah. learn so much about character just from stuff like that. So good, and all the scene like where they were um having having yeah they invite um Hooper over for dinner and he's getting quite pissed on red wine and or the cut open the shark. It, it's just so good together. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, perfect. But it's, it's great when he brings over uh, so but when he brings over like a bottle of white and a bottle of red and he says I didn't know what we're eating and uh, and then while he's talking he just gets the uh, bottle opener and he just. Uh, <laughs> He takes the cork out and pours himself like a pint of wine, <laughs> and then he gives everyone like a tiny little drop of wine. He's like, it's funny, it's funny, but it's real as well. That's the sort of thing my dad would do. Um, yeah, it's funny stuff, uh, yeah. but yeah, really good. Yeah, um, really good. <laughs> Young oh. Frankenstein is another one worth talking about. I think that's another great one. That's like one thing I think people forget about Young Frankenstein is how great it looks. It's not just like a that sort of broad comedy or just shot in that way, it really looks exactly like a kind of universal horror film. It's such a pretty yeah. film to watch. 
Um, and it's also incredibly funny. <laughs> so, so funny. I only discovered the outtakes um, like a year or two ago, and they're like as funny as the film. I don't know if you've seen them. No, I don't think so. Yeah, they're just on YouTube, and they're fucking like the amount they said Gene Wilder was the worst for corpsing, and you can see that he just he loses it. Mighty Feldman makes him lose it so many times. Um, yeah, it's just yeah, it's it's just a bit of a genius film, and like everything comes together, like every character in it, it's just um, perfectly cast, and yeah. You've got Gene Hackman popping up as the blind man in it, and I always think it's they go, oh, that must be before he was that famous, but apparently it was like. They wanted, like, I think he was, he was filming something else and he, he, he kept bumping into him on the set. And it was like, what are you doing? And they're like, Young Frankenstein. It's like Mel Brooks' film. And I think that uh, Gene Hackman, I think, was such a big fan of Blazing Saddles. He was just like, can I be in it? Can I do, can I do a bit? <laughs> that was after Gene Hackman was quite a big, a big name. And I think he like, just amazing. turning up on it and just playing this blind man. Yeah, it's but great. I, it's just, I was going to make espresso. Yeah, yeah, great. But um, I also think it was because Gene Hackman had just done a lot of um, dramas and that he hadn't done much comedy on film, if any. And he was just like, I'm not sure if I can do it. And so he did like this really small part on Young Frankenstein to, like, as a little test to see if he could do comedy. He's great in it. It's really great. A lot of these, a lot of these are sort of like childhood films that you grew up with. Did you always, were you always interested in films? Um, yeah. Um yeah, always, always loved loved films and going to the cinema and um, um, yeah, it's always hard, isn't it, to make a list of your favourite films? But I think some have always just yeah, just they're always there and it's gonna be hard to push off my list. Yeah, it's is impossible. What, is that what made you want to be an actor? Do you think watching films and things is that what? Yeah, I guess so. Um, but but not sort of exclusively. Yeah, like a lot of theatre. Uh, as well, kind of exposed to and going going trips trips to London from Southend to see the odd play that would have a big big effect on us, and um, and and likewise with 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 TV and stuff as well. Um, yeah, it made me sort of foolishly yeah want to want to stick at it and get into it. Yeah. So how did that start then? Was that from school, or what was the what was the thing that made you go? Oh, this is what I want to do. Um, I, I kind of never really had like a moment of that. I started when I was about six, going to a little drama school uh, classes with a mate of mine who was like, "I'll come along." And this lady who like studied at Lambda and stuff, and then she taught little drama classes. Um, then you put on at the local South End Drama Festival a monologue or a duologue or a group scene, and um, yeah, they were doing Charlie Brown. Um, and they sort of shoehorned me in because they were literally about to do it. And I just came across the stage on a skateboard because I was obsessed with skateboards at the time. And, and that, that was sort of it, really. And then I just sort of stuck at it. And there was nothing else I was really like, uh, I want to do other than this, really. So I just sort of, yeah, didn't really so think of it. There was a point where you even made that decision. It's just been what you've always done and what you've always wanted to do. Yeah, randomly enough, yeah. I think G Jim Carrey says about, like, don't have, have sort of a backup plan, but I didn't think about any of that at the time. Like, it, it, you should, obviously, because I've had to do bits and pieces, like, to time me over here and there when you're, when you're starting out, like, because obviously it's a tough industry, um, so it's good to have lots of strings to your bow. Um, but at the same time, I think some, so in some ways, the kind of naivety of just going, like, this is all I've 
sort of enjoying I'm just going to keep doing it it's, mm. it's helped me like just to focus on that and not go oh well this is a bit hard and um, there's a lot of unemployment so I'm going to do this instead and um, it also means without realising it you've already built up years of experience right so even though you might be um, lots of people might only be starting acting I guess going into drama school or something but you've probably had years before that or more experience maybe than a lot of people or you're always earning sort of points and your your sort of hours learned on the job you've started that a lot younger right i guess in a way yeah I, yeah like definitely sort of stage stuff i didn't really it took me a while to get any sort of screen work auditions um so i think it's sort of the thing like the cliche of once it's on your cv then they go oh you can do it so um yeah so that uh, yeah that took us a while and like um um, but like, I just opened that door when it did come. Um, and yeah, it was just from a workshop with a casting director who cast EastEnders. Um, and, and the next day I, I got a call for that. So yeah, just sort of simple things, open doors in, uh, yeah. So if you could give any advice to anyone that's listening, what would it be? Um, like about anything in particular or... <laughs> maybe, maybe about your maybe about your career but about anything in particular if you want um i, I would say yeah yeah you're right it's a, it's a bit a bit of a wide one to do anything in it I'll, I'll stick to the career um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um yeah i i would say sort of if you, if you want to do it obviously i think everyone would know it's it's a tough old industry but um uh sort of keep hold of what makes you unique and embrace that because uh like no it's no no there's no two of of anyone um and i think going to drama school or even if you don't you can try and think oh i've got to be like that or you can try and change yourself a bit too much but in essence like your uniqueness is what's going to get your work basically um i think i was guilty sometimes a little bit of coming out of drama school and forgetting kind of a little bit of my roots and 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 who I was so I, I was walking into rooms trying to be a bit posher or trying to be a bit this or like that performance in the theatre I've seen um yeah so a bit of a long answer but I, I think so. I think that's great I think that's exactly the same in sort of stand-up and comedy stuff it's like the closer you can be to just being what you're like in real life the more successful you'll be and the more like an audience can read that immediately they sort of buy into the um essentially like the the unis of it you know they kind of go all oh, right i'll buy into that and i think yeah the more you try and be someone else or a version of yourself the harder it is to ever okay. like well, get a response from an audience yeah unique, unique, yeah unique, like obviously work. all actors want to want to play every sort of part and it and and, and you you want to be able to be a bit chameleonic if that's the right word and and that's great, but I think, yeah, it's just you, whatever your take is on a part or your history, um, and when you walk in a room for any audition, just not to, yeah, try and be someone else, particularly with all that, the beginning bit, just, yeah, embrace you. Yeah, so that makes sense, yeah. No, that's great. That's great, because, you know, a lot of it is trying to um, second-guess what other people want. But in actual fact, if you're just true to yourself, then maybe that's what people want. And you're the only person that can do that. That's exactly um, it, yes. Tom, that, we've talked to you for an hour. That has gone by super fast, all right? Um, uh, 
we're going to finish off with playing a game with you now. Uh, we'll do it as quickly as possible in case your doorbell goes again. Uh, so <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm going to hand it over. Don't you ever apologise. I'm going to hand it over to Nathaniel, and he's going to take it away. This is the game, Tom. It's called Better or Worse, and you have to say the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion, to score points. Your opinion? Yeah, my opinion. Right, right. Ben Kingsley. Is Ben Affleck better or worse than Ben Kingsley? Worse. Better. He's worse. He's worse. Ben Stiller, better or worse than Ben Affleck? Ben Affleck. Better. Better. Benny Hill, better or worse than Ben Stiller? Better. Worse. <laughs> worse. Jonah Hill, better or worse than Benny Hill? Worse. Better. Well, he's good. Probably, uh, yeah, no, yeah, better. Joe <laughs> Pesci, better or worse than Jonah Hill? Better. 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 Joseph Gordon-Levitt, better or worse than Joe Pesci? Worse. Worse. Gordon Ramsay, better or worse than Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Worse. 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 Olivia Coleman, better or worse than Gordon Ramsay? Better. Better. Uh, Barbara Streisand, better or worse than Olivia Coleman? Worse. Worse. Barbara Windsor, better or worse than Barbara Streisand? Worse. Worse, yeah. I think that's pretty... Ten! You got a turn! Oh my god! You got a turn! You got a turn! Tom Cleave's got a turn! I mean, you're as good as Jen Breath to Jason Manford, Joey Skladani, uh, and you're better than uh, Ken Cheng, Harry Hildy, Marley with nine, Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Chris Starks, Stu Whipping with eight, uh, and James King, Henry Normal, Johnny Vegas with seven. Uh, you've done really well there. Uh, Tom, thank you very much. Welcome to the fan club clubhouse. Uh, say goodbye. Guys, thanks for having me. Sorry about the doorbells. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. And don't leave, but we're going. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye, Nathaniel. Goodbye. We're going to play Cheers. Cheers, Nathaniel. Bye. Cheers.